0: This is episode 235 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is supported by patrons. It's listeners just like you who sign up to support our show that can contribute directly to programming and get access to a library of bonus Shakespeare history content when you join us at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Hi,
1: I'm Sarah Neville, a professor of English at The Ohio State University. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. As hard as it is to believe that Shakespeare could have written all that he did without the help of caffeine he probably missed out on both coffee and hot chocolate.
2: And now, here's Cassidy.
0: Coffee, tea, and chocolate may be regular items in the daily lives of the English today, but for Shakespeare, these items were not on the everyday menu. In fact, drinking coffee or tea was seen with much superstition and hesitancy by anyone who knew it was there, and most people didn't even know about it. While Shakespeare does mention one poor penny worth of sugar candy in Henry V, he would not have been talking about chocolate. Confections like chocolate and drinking tea, along with coffee houses, would not become normal in England until after Shakespeare died in 1616. However, what we can see about these items in Shakespeare's lifetime is the process of caffeine arriving in England. It's during Shakespeare's lifetime that coffee, tea, and chocolate was an exotic sample of foreign lands being brought to Europe by various explorers and trading companies. Here today to share with us the history of the coffee, tea, and chocolate, and where they were at in their journey from obscurity to popular everyday kitchen staples, is our guest Elisa Tiersanyi. Elisa Tircini is the GHI Digital Humanities Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Toronto. She completed her doctorate in English, focusing on book history and print culture. She was the Digital Research Fellow at the Folger Shakespeare Library for the Mellon-funded research project Before Farm to Table, Early Modern Foodways and Cultures. You can see more of Elisa's work and connect with her at the link in today's show notes. Hello, Elisa. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you here again.
1: Hi, Cassidy. It's nice to be here again.
0: Are there records of when coffee was first introduced to England, not necessarily as a popular beverage, but the first time coffee beans arrived in England as maybe a novelty item?
1: Yeah, it's really hard to put a date on when coffee was first introduced into England or when it was introduced to English people more generally. So coffee is a surprisingly recent discovery and people in um, what is now Yemen and Ethiopia discovered it only in the 15th century. And so it's been drunk for about 500 or 600 years, which isn't very long. The first record that we have of an English person coming into contact with coffee is a letter that was written by William Bedulf and it's dated 1600. So he was a clergyman who worked for the Levant Company, which maintained trade between England and the Ottoman Empire. And he first encountered coffee in Aleppo. So that's not in England. And it was probably there and elsewhere in the Mediterranean that the first English people encountered coffee around the turn of the 17th century. So like Bedolf, they were probably traveling merchants or working in trade, And the average English person wouldn't have encountered even the concept of coffee, let alone the taste, until decades later.
0: In the late 17th century, now I believe it's around the 1660s, but correct me if I get the date wrong there, Henry Stubbs wrote a book titled The Indian Nectar or A Disclosure on Chocolate. Elisa, is Henry Stubbs writing about hot chocolate here? And would Shakespeare have known about hot chocolate or was that also after his lifetime?
1: So, as hard as it is to believe that Shakespeare could have written all that he did without the help of caffeine, he probably missed out on both coffee and hot chocolate. And it would have been rare for English people to encounter chocolate, either in taste or in text, um, before Shakespeare died in 1616. So, it's possible that Shakespeare knew about chocolate, but he never expressly mentions it in his plays or poems. And he does mention drinking nectar. But he doesn't use the phrase Indian nectar, which is the phrase that Henry Stubbs uses to describe hot chocolate. So there are a few things that make the introduction of hot chocolate to England quite different from the introduction of coffee. So while coffee is a relatively recent invention, hot chocolate has been drunk by Indigenous peoples in what is now known as the Americas for thousands of years. And chocolate was also really culturally much more significant than coffee. So it was used by Indigenous peoples in ceremonies and rituals, and it was also used medicinally, and it could even serve as currency. So because chocolate was so important to these Indigenous communities, it's generally accepted that Christopher Columbus would have been the first European to come into contact with hot chocolate during his travels. The initial colonizers' accounts actually describe their fear of chocolate, as opposed to, say, like turkey and cornbread, which they readily consumed and enjoyed immediately. So Columbus brought examples of foodstuffs that were new to him back to Spain, and that's how foods like turkey, cornbread, and hot chocolate actually came into Europe. So despite the Spaniards' initial hesitation... Hot chocolate became a popular drink that evolved to suit Spanish tastes in ways that were really quite distinct from its original preparation methods. And in fact, it became so popular and distinct in Spain that it actually became like sort of emblematic of the nation. So you might remember that, for instance, in Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, the Spanish dance is chocolate. So to go back to your original question. Henry Stubb's book explains to the English reader, not only how to make hot chocolate, but also how hot chocolate is made in the English way. And what he explains is that Spain's method is to mix chocolate with water, whereas in England, it's better prepared with milk. So both Spanish and English hot chocolate recipes included additives, Um, the most important of which was sugar. But the Spanish additives tended to include more spices, including chili pepper. And English hot chocolate had fewer spices and more thickeners. So it included things like egg and even breadcrumbs or flowers. The Spanish recipe is much closer to the recipes that the indigenous peoples used, which used water instead of milk and included spices like chili pepper and honey.
0: So we've covered chocolate and coffee. I think we should also tackle tea, which is almost synonymous with the British in terms of images we think of today about England in particular. But would Shakespeare have known what tea was during his lifetime? Sadly, no. Shakespeare seems oh, to have missed Oh, that's so out on sad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so poor Shakespeare. He just narrowly missed out on all three. So it wasn't until the mid-18th century that tea really became the preferred drink in Britain. And tea is similar to chocolate in the sense that it has a long history that goes back hundreds and thousands of years in East Asia, but only came to England relatively recently. And again, that was around the time that Shakespeare died. So initially, coffee was far more popular than tea, just because tea was exorbitantly expensive. So it was about 10 times the cost of high-quality coffee at the time, and coffee wasn't cheap either. And tea was initially served in coffee houses, so it was actually through coffee culture that tea became known. And it wasn't until tax laws changed that tea became much cheaper than coffee, and that's when it supplanted coffee and became sort of the national drink of Britain. Coffee houses started popping up, and people tend to think that coffee houses indicated an increased interest and drinking of coffee, but historians of England actually have limited information about what coffee drinking culture was like before 1700. So we know that the first coffee house opened in Oxford around the year 1650, and that coffee houses started popping up all over London. So there were over 80 that popped up within a decade alone. Coffee probably came into London before that, but not for a mass market. It, was, it would have just been brought in for personal use from merchants who traveled through the Mediterranean. So, although we know that coffee houses started appearing in metropolitan areas, we don't know whether they popped up in more rural areas in England. And so, it is possible that coffee remained purely a metropolitan drink, and that it wasn't adopted more broadly. It's really unclear whether this presence of coffee houses indicates a developing taste for coffee in England, or if it just signals the development of a coffee culture. So for one, coffee houses served more than just coffee, and there's also evidence that ale houses began offering coffee. So this blending of coffee and ale house sort of happens. And although raw coffee was being imported into England and roasted in London, it wasn't until the mid 18th century that it was taken up as a mass market. And by then it had been overtaken by tea because tea had become cheaper. So rather than writing about drinking coffee, people at the time were writing about coffeehouse debates. So they were writing about what was happening in the coffee house as opposed to about coffee. And in fact, the coffee house debate became an entire literary genre that was common. So, what we know is that a coffee culture existed, but it's not entirely clear whether coffee was common or popular as a beverage, at least at first.
0: So you mentioned that chocolate would go on to develop into a hugely popular product being served alongside tea at these types of coffee house establishments and poor Shakespeare missed out on all of these things but I do know about the history of cacao and and chocolate when it was first being discovered during Shakespeare's lifetime, and people were looking at this and wondering exactly what it was. And Elisa, I was wondering if you would tell us one particular story that you've written about of English pirates that misunderstood the cacao bean.
1: Yeah, so that's actually one of my favorite stories about the history of chocolate. (laughs) So chocolate was very slow to make its way to England, even though it became popular in Spain. And as a result, you end up getting these contemporary reports that are documenting all these mistakes that English people make when they're coming across cacao pods for the first time. So one of these stories is that English pirates who captured a Spanish ship carrying a shipment of cacao threw the cacao overboard because they mistook it as sheep dung, which was an unfortunate mistake to make because cacao was quite expensive and was worth a lot. And there were other reports. Or similar reports at the time. So, for instance, there was an English man who burned a hundred thousand cacao pods because he just didn't know what it was. And I guess that was the English colonial response: was if you don't know what it is, burn it. <laughs> so, at least at first, English people didn't have a concept of cacao or chocolate. But just as in contrast to that story, the enthusiasm for chocolate elsewhere, so like in Spain and in what is now Mexico, was so notable that we actually have a recorded story of death by chocolate. So one priest living in colonial Spanish America relays a story of a conflict between a bishop and some local women who were drinking chocolate. And after the introduction of chocolate into Spanish culture, there was a very hotly contested debate about whether chocolate could be consumed during periods of fasting, which is really common in the Catholic faith. So this bishop reportedly forbade these women from drinking hot chocolate during mass, and the women apparently enacted their murderous revenge by poisoning the bishop's own cup of hot chocolate.
0: You're kidding! (laughs) Oh my goodness, don't take away those girls' chocolate!
1: (laughs) So whether any of these stories is true is unclear, but they certainly show how different and heated the responses to chocolate were.
0: So poor Shakespeare, he's living here in in London, traveling back and forth between Stratford-upon-Avon and the big city, and he doesn't get to have coffee, tea, or chocolate. But he must have had some kind of hot beverage that would have been popular for his lifetime. I mean, with the cold, rainy English winters, they had to have had warm drinks to keep back the cold. So what would have been the kind of hot beverages Shakespeare would have enjoyed?
1: Yeah, so there are plenty of hot beverages that he would have drunk, and one of them is hippocras, which was a popular malt wine at the time. And hippocras is a wine that's mixed with sugar and spices. And these spices might include cinnamon, clove, ginger, long pepper. It could be served warm, but it could also be served room temperature. And it sometimes contained other forms of alcohol, so like brandy or something, and even milk. So it was commonly drunk in England from the medieval period until uh, about the 18th or 19th century. And one of the things that is so interesting to me about hot beverages generally in this period is that before coffee and tea, there wasn't really a material culture that was specific to hot beverages. So one of the ways we can actually track the introduction and consumption of coffee and tea in the English diet is that there's an increase in ownership of China, including teapots and coffee pots, And this ownership steadily rose from about 1700 onwards. So that's how we know that's when tea and coffee are really taken up as drinks in England. So you can see the impact of the widespread purchase of these accoutrements in recipes from the period, which start to use measurements like the teaspoon.
0: So unlikely to find a tea cozy in Shakespeare's house. (laughs) That's right. Now, I know we would love to explore not only the history of coffee, tea, and chocolate, but the history of hot beverages from Shakespeare's lifetime as well. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use if we want to explore this topic further?
1: So I would highly recommend a website called Cooking in the Archives, which you can find at rarecooking.com, and it's put together by a colleague of mine, Marissa Nicosia, And she posts early modern recipes that she has modernized so that people can try them using accessible modern ingredients. And one of the recipes that she has written is an early modern version of hot chocolate. And so I would highly recommend that listeners go and try that out.
0: Oh, absolutely. We will have to try this out and I'm already thinking we should put this on DIY History, which is our companion YouTube channel here for That Shakespeare Life where we do exactly that and try out recipes from Shakespeare's lifetime. So, I'm I'm thrilled to take that over there and see what it tastes like. Now, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So, your choice would be in addition to those.
1: Well, I guess if I was stuck on an island, I would pick some comfort reading. And so I I would pick A Little Princess um, by Frances Hodgson Burnett.
0: Oh, that's a wonderful choice. I think that's such a comforting book. That would be definitely the thing to have. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: Well, I'm currently writing a book on exactly this topic. So European responses to new foods, such as coffee and tea and licorice and all those good things in the early modern period. So you can look out for that in the near future.
0: Absolutely. We'll look forward to seeing that and reading it when it comes to fruition. If you would like to follow Elisa Tiersigny's work, you may check the show notes for today. We'll have links to where you can follow her, find out more about her latest book, as well as all of the resources that she mentioned for today's episode. Thank you, Elisa Tirsigny, for being here this week and taking us through the history of coffee, tea, and chocolate as it relates to the life of William Shakespeare. This has been a really fun conversation, and I thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. If you liked our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Drop us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see pictures and links to online versions of some of the manuals, letters, and treatises written about coffee, tea, and chocolate from around Shakespeare's lifetime, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes is where we pack visual content that coordinates with the caffeinated history you're learning about today, along with more information about our guest, places you can follow her work, and a list of the resources Elisa recommends if you want to explore today's topic further. Find all of these things completely free at castycash.com slash episode 235. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 235. If you love learning Shakespeare history here with us each week and would like to connect with other listeners who love the history as much as you do, along with getting access to special bonuses like award winning three minute animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films that have been donated to our patrons by partnering history organizations, as well as the opportunity to have a hand in selecting our episodes for that Shakespeare life, then consider becoming a patron. Patrons are the backbone of our show, they're a vital part of keeping our show on the air, and you're Your support allows us to connect with great guests, bringing you excellent historical research here each week that's made available completely free anywhere in the world and all without any commercials. If you would like to support our show and help us continue That Shakespeare Life while also getting VIP access to our online community, then join us as a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.